Well, we'll start this morning with some good news, as one news report put it, quote, with the Mass celebrated in the Cathedral of St. Stephen on Sunday, September 9th. Benedict XVI revived a musical and liturgical tradition that had been interrupted for decades. Close quote. So what happened? Last Sunday, uh, the Holy Father celebrated a papal mass accompanied with Gorian chant and the whole Kyrieale, which was written by Franz Joseph Haydn. Kyrieale is the Kyrie, the glory of the credo, the Sanctus Nagnus Dei. All that was done in polyphony. So what? Ladies and gentlemen, that's only the second time the popes have celebrated a Mass like that since 1963. It's great news. It's fantastic news. And then later in the day, last Sunday, the Holy Father visited a Cistercian monastery where the monks sing the whole office in Latin. It's all Gregorian chant. And while speaking to him, he said, and I quote, Truly, it would not be presumptuous to say that in a liturgy completely centered on God, we can see in its rituals and chant an image of eternity. In all our efforts on behalf of the liturgy, the determining factor must always be our looking to God. We stand before God. He speaks to us, and we speak to him. In the light of this, I ask you to celebrate the sacred liturgy with your gaze fixed on God within the communion of saints, the living church of every time and place, so that it will be truly an expression of the sublime beauty of the God who has called men and women to be his friends. A liturgy which no longer looks to God is already in its death throes. Close quote, the Vicar of Christ. A liturgy which no longer looks to God is already in its death throes. In a liturgy completely centered on God, we can see in its rituals and chant an image of eternity. In all our efforts on behalf of liturgy, the determining factor must always be our looking to God. We stand before God He speaks to us, and we speak to him. Celebrate the sacred liturgy with your gaze fixed on God within the communion of saints, the living church of every time and place, so that it will be truly an expression of the sublime beauty of the God who has called men and women to be his friends. That's what our Holy Father said earlier this week. All right, let's shift gears. Before we go, uh, get going, we should note that this next part is substantially the work of Dr. Warren Carroll with major excerpts from things like the Encyclopedia Britannica, Butler's Lives of Saints, the Breviary, and a whole bunch of other things, okay? So basically this is one long paraphrased quote with other things stuck into it, so I'm not going to go quote-unquote and all that. Just don't think this is my work. Uh, it's not. All right. So it's just paraphrased and mangled probably. Anyway, let's get going. In the spring... Of the year 611, Khosros II, the king of Persia, invaded Roman territory, sweeping over and capturing, over, capturing much of what is now eastern Turkey and Syria. By the spring of 614, the greatest Persian general, Sarbaraz, the wild boar of the empire, had surrounded the walls of Jerusalem with his army. It took a month for the Persians to undermine the walls of Jerusalem, Once they breached the walls, they spent three days sacking the holy city, killing some 34,000 people in the process. The Persians destroyed more than 300 Catholic churches and monasteries, sparing only the Church of the Nativity in Bethlehem because it contained a depiction of the three magi. During the sack of the city, the Persians discovered the hiding place of the most treasured relic in the world by torturing the custodians. 
They seized this priceless relic, the greater part of the true cost, and carted it back to Persia. St. Helena had brought other smaller parts of this holy relic back to Rome. The shock of having lost the holy places, having them all sacked, losing the holy city, and especially for having, losing, having lost the major part of the relic of the true cross to the pagans was absolutely enormous. And the Persians kept coming. The next year, 615, another Persian general led another army all the way across Asia Minor to the Bosporus itself. Quick uh, geography reminder. The Bosporus, Constantine built Constantinople on the eastern side of the Bosporus. The Bosporus is a narrow strait. It's 19 miles long. It's less than two miles, two and a half miles wide at its widest point and less than a half mile wide at its narrowest point. It connects the, the Black Sea with the Sea of Marmara and it forms the boundary between, right there between Europe and Asia. So at that point, the only thing that was holding back the Persian army from the imperial capital itself was this narrow thread of water. The Eastern Roman Emperor, the Byzantine Emperor, Heraclius, sent ambassadors to ask for terms of peace. But the Persian general seized them, bound them, and sent them to Cosros, who would accept nothing but unconditional surrender. The next year, 616, Sarbares invaded Egypt, swept up to the walls of Alexandria, which at that time was the largest city in the world west of China and India, and used a fleet of fishing boats to attack the unprotected seafront of the city. All the warships of the empire were right there occupied in the Bosporus, keeping the Persian army on one side to keep them away from Constantinople. During the sack of Alexandria, the Persians killed some 80,000 people. And as if this wasn't bad enough, hordes of Avars and Slavs had overrun and devastated most of inland Greece and Thrace. Thrace is roughly uh, modern-day European Turkey, uh, Bulgaria, parts of Serbia and Macedonia. That's roughly what Thrace is. Remember, by this time, the Western Roman Empire has already been overrun by the barbarians, and that's collapsed. So... All that's left of the Byzantine Empire, all that's left of Christendom at this moment, the only thing left for Heraclius, the Byzantine Emperor to rule, is Constantinople itself, a few cities on the Aegean coast, and the province of Asia around Roman Carthage. That's in modern-day Tunisia. That was it. It was overrun. The Patriarch of Constantinople, now Patriarch is a, a bishop that has a certain special privileges. Patriarch Sergius offered Heraclius all the treasures of the churches of Constantinople so that he could have money to raise a new army. So they melted down the chalices and whatnot so that they could coin money to raise an army. The first thing Heraclius did was take a bunch of the, uh, the funds and go uh, buy off the Avars and Slavs so he could protect at least that flank so that they'd leave him alone. Then he spent two years equipping and training an army. On Easter Monday in 622, in the glorious Cathedral of Holy Wisdom in Constantinople, that's the Hagia Sophia, it's, it's now a mosque, but it's the cathedral in, uh, in Constantinople. Heraclius prayed that God would grant success to his army. It's literally the last trained army in all of Christendom. Then carrying a miracle-working icon of Christ before him, he led his troops aboard ship to cross over to Asia. By this time, after, this, after the years, the Persian army was no longer camped right across the, uh, the Bosporus. Think of what's going on. Heraclius had staked everything. His throne, his realm, his life, the very survival of the Byzantine Empire. That's the last remains of Christendom. He'd staked everything on this eastward march with the last army of Christendom. 
Instead of taking the normal campaign route into the open country, in the rolling country in upper Mesopotamia, he marched into the mountains of Armenia uh, and in the winter of 623. Now the Persians followed him, but in a brilliant campaign, Heraclius outmaneuvered and defeated Sarbaz in three successive battles. He suggested a truce then to Khosrows, but the king rejected the offer of Heraclius with complete contempt. He referred to himself as the master of the world. He referred to Heraclius as his contemptible and imbecilic slave. I love that line. And then he blasphemously stated that Christ himself was incapable of saving the Byzantine Empire. For the next few years, Heraclius would spend the summers campaigning, attacking, defeating Persian armies, and then holding up for the winter in the mountains uh, where Armenia is. In 626, Sarbaz marched to the Bosporus again. This time he's got a huge army accompanying of Avars and Slavs. On July 29th, the army draws up before Constantinople. July 31st, August 1st and 2nd are days of continuous assault on the walls. The Byzantine Catholics have a tradition that during the attack, Patriarch Sergius marched along on top of the walls of Constantinople, Constantinople with an icon of the Blessed Virgin Mary, and that she st- stirred up a huge storm with tidal waves that destroyed most of the fleet of the enemy, which forced them to retreat. The faithful Constantinople celebrated this victory by, by gathering in the, in the Hagia Sophia and spending the night standing there singing this great Marian hymn, Akathistos. That means not seated. This is a, a hymn that has, all, it's got 24 stanzas and it's still sung by Eastern Catholics during Lent. One part of the hymn that's repeated over and over again refers to this specific event. It goes like this. To thee, O mother of God, unconquered empress, do I, thy city, freed from evils, offer thanks for the victories achieved, but do thou, by thy invincible power, deliver me from every kind of danger, that I might cry to thee, hail maiden spouse. So he spent the night singing in thanksgiving to the Blessed Virgin. Meanwhile, the armies way over in Asia Minor. Heraclius leads his troops down out of the mountains and onto the plains of Mesopotamia. In front of him, the Persians are retreating. They're breaking all the dikes. They destroy the irrigation system in Mesopotamia. It silts up and salts up. It's never recovered from this. They're flooding it. They're trying to keep him from getting anywhere. In December of 627, near the ruins of Nineveh, which is Mosul, you know, Heraclius met the Persians. He personally killed three Persian generals in single combat. Then he charged into the enemy ranks at the head of his troops and personally killed the Persian commander. And at that, the whole enemy force scattered. Think of what a heroic man this is. Khosrows fled and blamed his defeat on his greatest general, Sarbaraz, and orders that he be executed. Unfortunately for Khosrows, Heraclius captured the courier that had the letter ordering the execution, and he read the letter and then forwarded it to Sarbaraz, and uh, which Sarbaz read the letter and formed a coalition of generals and nobility, and they captured Khosrows. And after they killed 18 of his sons before his eyes, they killed him and crowned his eldest son as the king. Heraclius immediately made peace with the new Persian king. His only demands were return of the relic of the true cross in the same condition that you took it in, return of any captives you're holding prisoner, and return of any conquered territory which includes Egypt, Palestine, Asia Minor, and Western Mesopotamia. The king of Persia agreed. After reaching the terms, Heraclius sent a victory dispatch, which was read in the Hagia Sophia. So they're reading this in the Cathedral of Holy Wisdom. I'll read uh, from it. 
quote, Let the whole earth praise the Lord. Serve the Lord with gladness and come before him with rejoicing. Let all Christians praising and glorifying and be thankful to the one God, rejoicing exceedingly in the sound of his holy name. For the proud crowds rose who fought against God has fallen. He has fallen and his body has gone down to hell. The memory of him who was proud and spoke evil against the Lord Jesus Christ, the true God, his immaculate mother, our blessed maiden and mother of God, the Holy Virgin Mary. The holy relic of the true cross had been recovered after 14 years. Now Heraclius decided to personally return to Jerusalem, and this was the occasion of a whole series of marvelous events. Upon arriving in Jerusalem, Heraclius was clothed in these magnificent robes, golden robes with, with, with jewels on them. If you, sometimes when we wear those, those uh, gold chasubles, that's actual gold cloth, and that's what it was, gold cloth with jewels on it. He's carrying this precious relic on his shoulders. It was in, in a big silver reliquary. But when he came to the gate leading out of Jerusalem to Calvary, it was impossible for him to go any farther. He's frozen. The harder he tried to move the less he could move. He just, the more he tried to move, the more he seemed fixed to the spot. So he's totally astonished, and so are the people there with him. Zachary, the patriarch of Jerusalem, turns to him and says, Consider, O emperor, you walk in your gaudy imperial robes. But Christ our Lord was poorly clad. You have on your head a rich crown, but Christ our Lord was crowned with a wreath of thorns. You go with your shoes on, but Christ our Lord walked barefoot. Heraclius took the hint and immediately laid aside all this magnificent apparel, took off his crown, borrowed the robe from a poor man, and then barefoot easily completed the rest of the way and devoutly replaced the cross in the same spot on Mount Calvary where it had been before being carried off by the Persians. And as if that wasn't marvelous enough, during this march, a whole series of miracles occurred. A dead man returned to life. Four paralytics were cured. Ten lepers recovered their health. Fifteen blind men recovered their sight. All kinds of possessed persons were delivered from evil spirits. And a large number of sick men were completely cured. All to remind mankind of the saving power of the cross of Christ. Just imagine the ecstatic joy of the faithful when this greatest of all relics, this huge chunk of the very wood that our Lord was nailed to, the very wood that our Lord hung on as he poured out his precious blood for the redemption of mankind. Just think of the ecstatic joy the faithful would have at that moment when this precious treasure returned and was replaced in its rightful place. It had been carried off. It hadn't been seen for 14 years. It had apparently been lost forever. So who could have ever thought that once more this priceless treasure would have been restored to its place? Once we think about that, once we ponder that, it's easy once we see the story behind the Feast of the Exaltation of the Holy Cross, it's easy why the church keeps this feast to commemorate those events. And once we've come to real appreciation of the meaning of the feast, that it's a solemn commemoration of the return of this priceless treasure connected with our Lord's bloody sacrifice, which had apparently been completely lost, but then after all these terrible battles had been safely restored to its rightful place, it's also easy to see why our Holy Father, Benedict XVI, chose this particular feast, the Feast of the Exaltation of the Holy Cross, to put into effect his motu proprio, summum pontificum. 
After all, when the vicar of Christ does something very significant, like promulgate an important document, he doesn't just do this at random. He doesn't do it at random. It behooves a thoughtful Catholic who wants to come to a more profound understanding of just what the Pope is teaching to consider carefully the significance of this particular feast day that the Holy Father has chosen to make a decree have full and lasting force. He's telling us something. And the fact that by command of the Pope his motu proprio took full and lasting force on the feast of the exaltation of the Holy Cross means something. It means something. Because after all, even though this beautiful rite of the Mass was never forbidden, as our Holy Father makes perfectly clear in his letter to the bishops, even though it was never forbidden, nevertheless, the simple reality is, in practical terms, in virtually virtually every parish in the world, this beautiful rite of Mass was apparently lost for the past 38 years. Which, interestingly enough, according to Deuteronomy 2.14, 38 years is the exact amount of time the people of Israel spent wandering in the desert. This beautiful rite of Mass, this beautiful, unbloody representation of our Lord's sacrifice on Calvary had apparently been lost for the past 38 years. Who would have ever thought that once more this priceless treasure would have been restored to its place? It's easy to see that by picking this feast day to return this beautiful rite of Mass to its rightful place, this rite of priceless beauty, this breathtakingly beautiful rite that comes down to us from the apostles and the saints, it's easy to see what our Holy Father, Benedict XVI, wants the faithful, what he wants us to draw. He wants us to draw these parallels out. He wants each one of us to be filled with the same kind of spiritual joy that filled the faithful of Jerusalem when the relic of the true cross was restored to its rightful place. There's a lot more that could be said here. There's a lot more. But we're running out of time. And you each have the gift of faith. Use it. Spend some time today mulling this over, meditating on it. What is the Holy Father teaching us? by this act.